Good morning, RLC family, friends, guests, those of you that are online, thank you for joining us. Thanks for connecting. Um, you know, we're, we're living in, in times that are, this is a word that's been used a lot, unprecedented, but uh, God knew it. God knew everything that was going to happen before it ever happened. He had a plan for it and a provision and promises. You know, God's Word tells us what's, what was going to happen in these days and the days ahead, and, and He doesn't tell us things that are to scare us but to prepare us. And He wants us to understand that these things are going to happen, but we don't, we don't have to be afraid of it. The Bible says that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in this world, but you're not of this world. That's a, that's a great promise to hold on to because your life is not dependent on what goes on in this world. Your supply isn't what your job gives you. Your supply isn't based on what the government can do or what this world does. Your supply comes from heaven. And the Bible says that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So God has a plan and a provision and a power available to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ that will cause us, and this is what Scripture tells us, to always be overwhelmingly more than conquerors in all things. Now, the question I have for you this morning is, God, is God's Word true or is it not? Is it sometimes true, most of the time true? All the time it's true. But that's where sometimes it's, it's very easy for us in the days that we live in, we have such a massive amount of, of information coming to us in a variety, uh, from a variety of sources. And every one of them wants you to believe what they're saying. Now, it can't possibly be right that everything everybody's saying is true. Is that correct? Because we have conflicting things. So now we have to figure out who's telling the truth and what part of the truth are they telling. And that can become very tiring, very difficult to discern. And it's not that we shouldn't try and determine, you know, what is truth. But I, I, I have to tell you that bef during this week while I was preparing, I felt like God was really nudging me to do something I've never done before. And I said, okay, God, you know, whatever you want, I know it's best even if I'm not comfortable, I want to do it. So this morning, before we get to the message, before we get to the Word of God, there is something that <clears throat> I felt like God wanted us to take a pause, to, to take a moment and remember and realign ourselves. Because uh, I thank you for those of you that are here on a regular basis, those that, of you that are tuning in. It's, it's, it's what we should do. The Bible says as the day of the return of the Lord approaches, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And, and we're watching people just, there are more and more out in the world that are saying, you know, I don't need church. I, I, I'm deconstructing my faith. Well, I have to tell you something. The moment we say we don't need the church, that's what God said he would build that the gates of hell would not prevail against. All right? When we say things about the church, now, is the church perfect? No, but God never, never said it would be. But he's perfecting the church. That's you and me. And we should all be growing. But the moment people are derogatorily talking about the church, we have to understand that that's not endearing us to Jesus. You're talking about his bride. If you talked about Debbie to me in a derogatory way, I'd say, hit the road. All right? But... We need to realize in this hour, we have to have real power, real insight, real wisdom, real truth to be able to withstand in this hour. And recently, and I don't know who it was, if it was somebody here or somebody I was watching uh, that mentioned that it used to be in the day of Jesus, and it still occurs in areas of the world, when the Word of God was spoken, people stood to hear the Word of God. It was just a show of honor. But we in America are, we can be tempted to think the word of God is just like any other word that comes out, and it's not. If we don't realize as Christians that the word of God is absolutely unique, 
There is nothing that has ever been like it. When, when God created everything he created, how did he do it? He spoke it. It was his word. It was his word. And he's given us his word in a book. And a lot of people are going to come against that and say, well, you know, the book's just, just written by men. It's like other books that were written. But it's not like any other book. The Bible is a very unique book, and we need to look at that because we need to come to the place where we decide once and for all and battle to hold this in our hearts that the Word of God is true. The Word of God is what helps us live the abundant life. The Word of God will never change. That's one of the things that you can tell something is true about. It never changes. That's why God will never change. And that's why we always have to change because we have to keep aligning and adjusting to get in line with truth that never changes. But I want to share a few scriptures and, and an illustration today that I read that I think are really important. In first, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Bible tells us God has breathed life into all scripture. Again, everything created was created by God speaking. His word, the word of God, the scriptures still have that kind of power in them. It is a powerful, life-changing, world-changing book, unlike any other. And it goes on to say it's useful for teaching us what is true. And what do we know about truth? What does truth do for us? Sets us free and keeps us free. How many of you know we need to experience the freedom of God in the world we live in today. We do. It's useful for correcting our mistakes. And there are probably a couple of you here today that make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Because if you don't think you made a mistake, you made a mistake. It's useful for making our lives whole again. And in this time and in this world, in the society and, and humanity that we live in, Everybody experiences all sorts of things that are tearing holes in our souls, in our lives, and we need this wholeness, and it comes from God, from His Word. It's useful for training us to do what is right. By using Scripture, the servant of God can be completely prepared to do everything good. And again, in this time and always, don't we all know the value of being prepared Man, it's terrible when you get to a situation and you're not prepared. You don't have what you need. But it's an amazing thing where you can be so calm, so peace-filled, even joy-filled when you encounter something and you're prepared and it's like, okay, didn't see it coming, but okay. Because you know what? I got what I need. And that's what God and His Word does. He'll, he'll write things and He has written things that may appear scary. A lot of times people don't want to look at the book of Revelation because it freaks them out. But understand, he's just explaining what's going to go on. And it's not to scare you, it's to prepare you. Because God wants you, as a believer in, in his son Jesus, to be able to stand up in the midst of everything, all hell breaking loose, and show what heaven looks like. Because people need to see that. People need to see what that's like. And so, <clears throat> Scripture is unique. It's not like any other book, any other thing. And, and this is why. The Bible was authored by who? Right, Holy Spirit. He was the original ghostwriter. Hey, if Taylor can do dad jokes, I can do dad jokes. <laughs> he was the original ghostwriter, but he wrote through around 40 other people. The Bible had 40 people Holy Spirit used to write it. Now, that's a diverse group, but it's a cohesive book. 66 different books over 1,500 years. And these 40 people came from different countries, cultures, languages, different times, backgrounds, occupations. There were kings and servants, doctors and shepherds, prophets and priests, fishermen, Tax collectors, and the list goes on. People like you and me. But God used them. 
And in the midst of this vast variety of people, places, times, languages, cultures, there's an amazing continuity and cohesiveness and clarity in the theme of the Bible. And that is God's love for all people and his provision of salvation for all people through Jesus Christ. It's to help us realize what's available. And, you know, people will say, well, I don't believe the Bible. You know what? There are all sorts of people that believe things that are true as if they were not true, and it doesn't make them not true. It just makes that person foolish and miss out on the truth. And that's where we today are inundated and saturated with all sorts of sources that are trying to get us to believe what they're saying. And if we don't know what the Bible says, we could fall prey to deception. And that is one of the key features and indicators of the last day. And many are going to be deceived. And the only way you and I fight deception is with truth. This book, the Bible that we have, is so accurate and unified and true that there was a science professor, his name is Peter Stoner, who wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he was a science professor and he um, was a mathematician and he worked in the study of probability. And he studied the Bible and the prophecies of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ the Messiah, in relationship to uh, how likely is this to have happened, the probability of it. And uh, uh, Peter Stoner's study was reviewed by the American Scientific Association, and they reported Stoner's findings in his book to be dependable, accurate in regards to the scientific materials presented, the mathematical analysis is based on the principles of probability and are thoroughly sound and professional. And he started out with just eight prophecies, eight prophecies about Jesus. And the prophecies were these, and I, I'm not going to read them all through, but I'm just going to give you the highlight of what it was, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, he'd be preceded by a messenger, he'd enter Jerusalem on a donkey, he'd be betrayed by a friend, he'd be, the betrayer would be paid 30 pieces of silver, the silver would be used for what it was, he would be executed by crucifixion, and that he would be silent before his accusers. Now, all of those things are true, they happen. And so when they studied this out, it wasn't just him, it was a group of scientists um, that studied this out, uh, whether this would be possible or not for not only these prophecies to be written years and years, at times hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene, but to be fulfilled by one person, all eight of them. And the probability of that happening is one in 10 to the 17th power. All right, so I don't know what that number is. I don't deal with those numbers. That's not something that my, my brain comprehends, but it's a t one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And, and I appreciate uh, Peter Stoner's insight into the fact that I and others might not be able to comprehend this, so he used an illustration of what this would be like. And he said, if you could gather 10 to the 17th power, that number of silver dollars... Okay, and, and you could distribute them over an area. It would cover the state of Texas completely two feet deep. Okay, so about this deep of silver dollars. So just a massive amount of silver dollars. If you mark one silver dollar and you put a man, and you covered, you mixed everything up, you covered the state of Texas with all these silver dollars, you put a blindfolded man in a helicopter, and you had him fly over the state of Texas wherever he wanted to go, and then he would say, land the helicopter here. And they'd land the helicopter there, and the man, blindfolded man would get out, and he'd reach down into that two feet of silver dollars around him and grab a silver dollar and pull it up, and it would be the marked silver dollar. How unlikely is that? How about impossible? 
But that's to tell you God does the impossible. And that's just about eight prophecies. Peter Stoner went on to determine the probability of the 300, no, 40 prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled. And that number was astronomical. It was one in 10 to the 157th power. When you think about that, that's just 48 of 300 prophecies that were prophesied about Jesus, of which most have been fulfilled. It's, it's helping us understand when God's word comes to us, God's word is unfallible. It's true. What God does is the impossible, and that's what we know. We, we know the Bible says with man what's possible? Nothing. But with God what's possible? Correct. And that's where when we go to God's Word, when we hear Scripture, we need to make sure that we're not just hearing another addition of information to add to the multitude of information that we're being just inundated by every day. The Word of God is unlike anything else. And when you and I hear the Word of God, the Word of God has the power to do miraculous things. You're going to hear the Word of God today, just like every Sunday. But don't let it be like any other Sunday. Let God's Word today be transformational. Let it be insightful, illuminating. Let it be healing to you. Let it do the work that God's Word and only God's Word can do. And, and today, realize that what's being said is absolutely true. And that truth, if we incorporate it in our, our life, will help propel us to experiencing more of the abundant life and having a greater impact in the world than ever before. Amen? I just want to pray before we go any further, before we get to the message. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your time uh, spent with us. You're always with us. But Father, we, we ask for your impartation today. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word. And I thank you for hearing hearts that are hungry for your truth. Father, help me communicate what you want the way you want. But Father, ultimately, your word will not pass away. Your word will be life and health to those who find it today. Your word will bring healing and wholeness. Your word will bring freedom and liberty because it's truth. Father, we thank you for your word that brings insight and understanding and wisdom and transformation because your word is life-giving and long-lived. You said heaven and earth will pass away before your word. And so today we thank you as your word goes forth. Your promise is that you would confirm your word with signs and wonders following. So we thank you for doing what only you can do. And Father, help us hide your word in our heart that we would not miss the mark you have for us or sin that would bring death. But Father, we thank you that your word brings life and life more abundant. So we thank you, Father, for what you're going to do here today. And Father, I thank you for the privilege of allowing me to share your word with your people, your bride, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been, we've been learning about and, and I've been teaching about what Jesus spoke in John chapter 15 about being fruitful. And I shouldn't ask this question, and I won't. But uh, I shared with you about when Jesus shared this. It was, there was a specific time that Jesus did this teaching. It was not like, you know, just a, hey, you know what, guys, let's take a minute and do this. Jesus shared this teaching in John chapter 15 after they had had the Last Supper, they had left the upper room. They were walking out across Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 
And they were headed towards, does anybody remember where they were headed towards? The Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was going to be betrayed. And he was going to be arrested. And so they're moving from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives, but they have to go through this valley. It's the Kidron Valley. And in those days, the Kidron Valley uh, happened to be having grapevines in it. And so Jesus is walking along, and he knows. Like none of the disciples know. He's told them, but they don't want to hear it. He knows that this is going to be the last time that he is going to have a peaceful interaction with his disciples before all hell breaks loose before they arrest him, before they beat him, before they put him on the cross. And so he takes this moment. And how many of you know in that moment, you're not going to talk about something that doesn't mean anything? This was a moment that was critical. He knew that some things needed to be shared. They needed to hear this so that they would be able to do and be what God had for them to be. And so he starts out in verse 1, and he starts teaching about a vineyard. And he said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I abide in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So this is the beginning of a teaching that he goes on and teaches and he shares things with his disciples. But we have been studying this and looking at this because there is a progressive work that God is, is wanting to do in all of our lives as Christians. When we get saved, it's not the end. Well, it is in a way. The Bible says when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life, when we receive the forgiveness and we give our lives to Christ to be Lord of our lives, the power of sin is broken in our lives. The aspect of sin compelling our lives and us to do things, we no longer are forced to do it. Because under the enemy's reign, we are forced, we're slaves, we're prisoners, we're forced to do all sorts of things. In God's kingdom, there's freedom. God will never force you to do anything, no matter how good it is. And he'll never force you to stop doing anything, no matter how bad it is. God gives you freedom, and he allows you to make your choice. But in that moment, we're freed from the compulsion that we have to sin. But how many of you know we still can sin? The moment you gave your life to Christ, did all sin stop in your life? Because if it did, I want to talk to you. Because in my life it didn't, and it doesn't happen in our lives. We're free, but we can still choose what has been habitual and familiar and, and even at times desirable in our lives. And so there is a process that God takes us to. He's freed us. We're his child. We're in his kingdom. But there's a process of growing. Just like a human being grows, just like a vine grows, there's a process that we become more completely and fully what God has for us to be. And, and so he tells us that he's the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, we're the branches, we're connected to him. But the first stage is we come into the kingdom of God and we don't have any fruit. And this fruit is very important because Jesus indicated and said that this fruit proves that you're my true disciples. This fruit, it brings great glory and honor to my Father. And he said, this fruit is what I called you and appointed you to bring forth. But this fruit has to start. And when it starts, and we start growing this fruit, when, it, when to move from no fruit to fruit, this is a partnership with us and God. And it takes God lifting us, just like we see in verse 2. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But we found out that really means to take up or lift up. And the way he lifts us up, we're in a new kingdom. And so 
He teaches us about this new kingdom through his word and by his spirit so we become educated and aware and understanding how this new kingdom works. And we need to make an adjustment and we need to be trained and discipled and disciplined in this. And as that happens, God begins to deal with the sin in our life. This first aspect is dealing with sin in our lives because we all still sin. And the reason why God's dealing with sin in our lives is because of what sin brings to our life, and that's death. And you and I can't have abundant life if we have death working in our lives. And so it's a transition from us allowing sin to work to letting God work more, more aligning with God and doing, getting rid of the things that are disrupting and destroying our lives. And then it says, once you have fruit... He begins to do something else, which is pruning so that you would have more fruit. You know, God is a God of progress. He's always moving forward. He desires to take our lives from glory to what? To what? To what? To what? For eternity. Glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory through eternity. And yet sometimes we, we get comfortable, we get complacent, and, and we become Christian campers. And camping is not a bad thing. I had, had somebody here this morning, and uh, they, were, they said, you know, I got really concerned about you talking about Christian campers, because I, I, I planned to go camping today, and I woke up, and, and I thought, no, I got to go to church. And I realized the camper was attached to my vehicle, so I drove my vehicle in the camper, and I hope you don't mind, I parked it in the back. I said, that's, that's great, that's good. And, and so when I talk about Christian campers, we get, we get comfortable, we get complacent, we get compromised, and we don't want to go any farther because it's just not as easy as sitting down and just letting what is be. But you and I are not supposed to be campers, we're supposed to be climbers going from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory, blessing to blessing to blessing, becoming more and more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's a never-ending in this life. It is a never-ending process. And so in the second stage of fruit to more fruit, there's a pruning process that goes on. And in, in the King James, it's purging. And whether it's purge or prune or cut off, all of those are, are in the same definition of the original word. It's a removal of something. And many times we don't like anything removed from our lives because we've got all our ducks in a row. We've got everything we want the way we want it. And even if we don't want it, it's familiar and we don't know if we got rid of it what we might get. So... God starts to go in and prune, cut, purge. And we saw in Jesus' life this was, had happened because there was a focus and a consistency and a commitment And a concentration of what his life was all about. We looked at this and Jesus said, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of who? My Father who sent me. He said, I do everything that pleases who? My Father. And he said, I only do what my father shows me or tells me. And this was a life that was so prioritized, so focused, so concentrated on what the father wanted that he had to let go of some other things. And so we need to realize that in this, that there were things that, that he didn't do because he had already determined what was the most important, most valuable in his life. And when we have that, 
when we have a clear understanding of what is the most important, what is the first place in our life, what is the most valuable, what's the most influential thing, what are we pursuing, then we can, we can look at other things and say, no, I can't do that because that's going to take me away. It's going to divide my allegiance, my focus, my time, my resources, all of those things. And so there has to be a pruning. And, and pruning... Sometimes it may look like or feel like a punishment, but it's not. Because when there's pruning, you know, when, when I go out and prune my bushes, I'm so glad our bushes don't have a voice. Because I'd hate to hear them when I'm cutting off all this growth. And, and just to show you what pruning looks like, if we would get the first, first uh, picture up there, John. This is a guy pruning a vineyard. And it comes at the end of the season, the growth has occurred, and, and what you see there is to the left where his arm is, to the, the backside of his arm, that's where he's already pruned. That's the vine that's been there, and what's ahead of him that's, man, it looks good. It's new growth. Uh, it's what's going to grow even more next year. But understand this, that if that is allowed to grow, and the, the vine put a lot of effort into growing that, but if that's allowed to grow, what it's going to do next season is it's going to want resources. It's going to want nutrients. It's going to want all sorts of things. And it's going to pull that. And the places that have produced and are producing fruit are not going to have as much available to them. So there's a division there. There's a competition there for the limited resources and what eventually happens is because a vine, not unlike us, a vine wants new growth all the time. I want new, I want new, I want new, I want new. And many times that's what we're interested in. We want new. Instead of developing the depth of character that God has for us, we just want new. And so they come through and they cut off all these new pieces so that there won't be the division of the resources that would cause the fruit. If not done, what will end up happening is these will continue to grow and more will grow and the fruit will continue to shrink and shrink to the point where the vine will not produce any more fruit. It'll just grow, but no fruit. And we have been created to bear fruit. It brings glory to God. It proves we're his true disciples. It's what God, Jesus ordained us to do. And so the next one, you can see it a little clearer in the foreground. You see where he's already trimmed it off. And it almost looks like it's dead. But it is a preparation for even more fruit. And the last one, it's, it's fairly clear. You can see he's, he's trimmed back so much on the one side, and he's trimming ahead. And this is what God's saying about our lives, that the father, the vine dresser, is going to start trimming things, not bad things. Things that are going to be in competition in your resources and devotion towards God. And this is, this is always challenging because a lot of these things we've had in our lives for a long time, they're not bad. We might even consider them good. Oh, we might say, well, you know, it's just the way it's always been. And yet we've got to understand as our life goes on, we should be becoming more and more devoted to God, more and more like Jesus. And, and for that to happen, somebody said it this way, to go up, you've got to give up. You know, it's true. If, if, you, want to, uh, if you want to go up in your ability to play a sport or an instrument or something like that, you're going to have to give up some other things. You're going to have to become more disciplined. And you, you might sit there today, and, and I've sat there, and, and I've thought, you know, I, I'm okay where I am. I don't want to have to give up anymore. I've given up a lot. I don't want to have to give up anymore. But that's my deception, the deception I have, because whatever I am holding on to pales in comparison to whatever gain that God has for me. And so there's, there's this tension in our lives of, of having to do this. But Jesus spoke to us. In Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How many firsts can there be in your life? One. And what he's saying is, there is a priority to your life and my life as a Christian, the first. 
always the first, never second, never third, never fourth, always first is the kingdom of God. That's what needs to be first. And his righteousness, his right ways of doing things. And he was saying this in relationship to his disciples who were saying, you know, that everybody wanted all this stuff. What are we going to have? And he said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things that those that don't know God are trying to attain, they'll be added to you. See, if you and I will put God first, he'll take care of the rest. You might say, that sounds pretty simplistic. It is. God doesn't want us to have to deal with rocket science. He's just saying, make me first. Because when I'm first in your life, then everything else can be accomplished the way I want it, if you'll continue to allow me to have that. And the Apostle Paul, you know, he, he, he too, it wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul affirmed these things in Colossians chapter 1, verse 8 in the Amplified. He said this, I think. Speaking of Jesus, he also is the head of his body, the church, seeing he is from the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he alone. Now, when we talk about something being alone, what else is there that's around it or in competition or equal to it? I know, obvious questions, but I'm asking you this because I want you to get clear what this is not my word. It is not the Apostle Paul's word. It's God's word through the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's true. He alone in everything and every respect. That's pretty extensive and complete, right? Might occupy the chief place. Stand first and be preeminent. This is talking about where Jesus needs to be where God needs to be, where his plan, his purpose, his pursuits, his word needs to be in our life. It, it needs to be first. Be preeminent. And that word preeminent we've talked about before, but it means to be first in rank. Nothing above. In my life and in your life, there can't be anybody or anything above in rank God. In my life, the next one that would possibly be in the running is my wife. But Debbie can never take that place above God. I can't put Debbie above God and have things right in my life or her life. I have to keep God first because if I don't, and it's true about all of us and all of our relationships, if we don't keep God first in rank, then all of our other relationships will never be what God intended them to be because without our relationship with God being first, we can't receive what we need to be what we're supposed to be and what we can be and give what God has for us to give others. I can't love another person unselfishly until I receive the love of God that he's first in my life. It means to be first not only in rank, but in value, there shouldn't be anything that's more valuable to me than God and his word. And then the third thing is influence. First in rank, value, and influence. And yet, I would challenge all of us today, and I'm challenged by this because I look at my life and I see where it's kind of on a rotating schedule. Sometimes I rank other things more important than God or his word, and I need to recognize that and realize what I'm doing is I'm compromising, and I am causing the enemy to be able to get a place and rob what God has for me, and not just for me, but for everybody I come in contact with. And so we need to always... In all things, in all ways, in all circumstances, all situations, let him have the first place. Now, that doesn't come naturally because who's usually in the first place in our lives? We are. We are. We've lived a long time with us being first. And now it's time to set that aside. Just like Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, my disciple, you have to deny yourself. And this is all about dealing with self. It's about recognizing self, ourselves. We ourselves don't know how to live right. 
apart from God. We think we know what's good and what's best. All those things. Remember those choices you and I made when we thought this is going to be awesome and it was a train wreck? Oh, come on. Be honest. You're in church. Yeah, and, and it probably wasn't too far off that that happened because it happens to all of us. But it, the reality is the only one that knows what's really best is God and can do what's best. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what's involved in whatever you do? Everything. Do all for the honor and glory of God. Do all for the honor and glory of God. But, you know, there are times in my life I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, it's not for the honor of God. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the pleasure of God. I'm just doing selfish stuff. Like we all do. And how comfortable it is to slide into that and how we think, you know, this isn't bad. I'm not killing anybody. Just doing what I want to do. Give me a break. But I'm telling you that there are things that you and I are doing that aren't evil, that aren't necessarily bad. They might even be desirable and good. But what it's doing is it's dividing your commitment to God. It's dividing your devotion to God, my devotion to God. And why would God ever put his finger on something and say, you need to get rid of that, when it's not sin? Because even though it may not appear to be something that we would classify as sin, it's still dividing you and your commitment to God. It's spreading the resources of the life God's given you among things that God may not want you to do. And it's God's prerogative. If he is Lord, he can put his finger on anything. And if we have a hard time with that, then we need to really check, is he Lord? Because the last time I checked, the word Lord means master, and the master has the final say in everything. And as there have been masters in humanity that have mastered other people that have been wrong, our master, the creator of the, the universe, the creator of everything, is loving and what he wants and what he does is always the best. And the moment we don't think that, the moment we start to doubt whether what God's doing is good, we're in serious trouble. And we'll see that today. Do all for the glory of God, but are we doing it for the glory of God, doing it for the honor of God, or are we doing it for our glory, honor, our honor, our pleasure? And you'll understand why I'm getting so deep into this today, because there's a point. And just, just so you understand, you know, everybody wants to be built up and encouraged and go leaving church feeling better. And I am not trying to stop that. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do what God has for me to do so that you won't just feel better for a moment, but your life will be better from now on. This is a battle. This is a struggle for all of us. And, and it's just the same battle that Adam and Eve had. You know, they struggled with some things. And... and one of the things Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he, said, he wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You say I have the right to do anything, but not everything is helpful. Again, you say I have the right to do anything, but not everything builds us up. True. Absolutely true. Don't we feel, and I'm telling you, I've heard more people just vocally, violently saying, I can do anything I want. Well, I want to tell you something, Christian. God loves you. He's given you freedom. He'll never force you to do anything. But you really don't have the right to do anything you want because the moment you gave Jesus the invitation to come and be Lord, you gave your rights up to him for him to be the one that, that governs 
and guides our lives because he's the only one qualified. He's the only one that does good. None of us does good all the time, but God does. And so we, we think we have this right. But the moment we stand up and say, I have my right, I will go, we're not even considering what God says. And that's a very dangerous thing because God, God is always going to do the best and we may occasionally, very rarely hit the best. But with this, I, I, I have the right to do anything. He follows it up. There's another scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 in the message that says this. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. You know, you, you and I can do all sorts of things, but is it right with God? The world says it's right. Maybe our families taught us it's right. But if God doesn't say it's right, it's not right. No matter how many people get on TV and say, this is right, this is good, this is appropriate, this is beneficial. If it does not line up with the Word of God, it is not. That's a lie. And if you believe it, you're going to move into the realm of deception. And where there's deception, there's what? There's loss. There's loss. When, when we're deceived, we're robbed. And in some ways, that kills things in our lives that God has for us. But is it spiritually appropriate? You know, it's, it's what happened with Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, and we're not going to go there, but I'm just going to share this real quickly with you. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had been experiencing amazing life. And all of a sudden, Lucifer shows up, and he starts talking to Eve about God. Why would you ever listen to a snake talk about God? And, and so the enemy begins to ask questions of Eve that bring questions to her about God. She begins to become uncertain about whether God really is good and really does have their best, but all they've experienced is the best. And, and he's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they shouldn't eat of it. And did God really say that? And, and what's he holding out from you? You know, of all the trees, you can eat of everyone, but this one's special and he's keeping the best for him. You're missing out on something. FOMO. Fear of missing out. It's huge in our, our society today. And so he, he even says, you know, what did God say? And she, she says, well, we're, we're not supposed to eat of the tree or even touch it because we'll die. Now, I want you to be very aware of what happened. There was secondhand knowledge there. There was not firsthand knowledge. Eve never heard that from God. Adam heard it from God. He heard from God. He got it himself. There's a danger of you sitting here today. You're hearing this secondhand. And if you don't go back and get in your word and see that what we're saying is true, there are going to be all sorts of people that will stand before you on the TV and, and in the news and things like that that are going to tell you, and they're going to be a whole lot more convincing than I am. But if you don't have... A, a reference point that is established, which is the Word of God, then you're going to believe the next most persuasive information you hear. And it's time to lock it down, church. Lock it down that you believe the Word of God, the Word of God is true, and if it doesn't line up with the Word, it's not true, and it's a lie. Because there are going to be all sorts of things that come in these days. And we can't just go with the flow. We can't go with the crowd. We have to build our lives upon the solid rock of God's word, truth, and not be deceived. And Eve was. She began to 
consider things she shouldn't have considered. And it says in verse 6 that, that she, she looked at the fruit, saw the tree, and that it was three things. Good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make her wise. All right? Now, who's at the center of that? Good for food. Who's, who's, eating, who's eating this food? She is. Pleasant to the eyes. Who's it pleasing to? Her. Desirable to make who wise? Her. It's all about self. And, and this pruning that goes on in our life is all about pruning self. Self can't be in the lead. Self can't be in control. Because God's not going to force it, but we have to have self take a back seat. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow him. And it's so counterintuitive. It's so unfamiliar. We feel like we're dying, but I'm telling you it's the way to life. And when we think about self, I heard this said years and years ago. I don't remember who said it first that I heard. But sin, if you take the letters of sin, S-I-N, it stands for self-indulgent nature. And every time you and I indulge ourselves, our flesh, instead of giving place to God, we're going to get into sin and death is going to come. And in these days, man, I'm telling you, the things that are being portrayed, man, they seem good, they seem pleasant, they seem desirable, and yet, what did the good, the pleasant, and the desirable get eat? Sin, death. And Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there's a way that seems right or good. And then in Proverbs 16, 25, the same thing is written again. There's a way that seems right or good to us. Whose end is the way of death? We can't. We don't have the capacity because we don't have the reference point of truth unless we're comparing it to God's word of what is right, what is good, and what is pleasing. Because we can deal with pleasing or good for a moment, but what comes afterwards? Yeah, yeah, you know what? I, 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 want, I want to go out and get drunk. So I'm going to go out and drink, get drunk because I think it's good and it's pleasing. I have a ball. And then I get in my car and I drive and I kill somebody. Getting drunk, the Bible says, don't get drunk. Well, God's a killjoy, big party pooper. He says that because there is nothing good from getting intoxicated. Now, we may think for, for many years, I thought it was good. It was good because it numbed my pain. I didn't feel the pain and, and uh, the, the hatred I had for myself. But every time I got through the time I had gotten drunk, I had more problems than when I went in to get drunk. And that's the way it works with the enemy. You pay a greater price than you ever dreamed you pay. Sin has pleasure for a season. But the cost of that is greater than you ever dreamed. Or you, if, you ne if you knew it, you'd never do it. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, understood how he needed to live his life. I have to decrease that he would increase. It's the same way with our lives. We need to give more of our lives over to God. Let him have his way in our lives because he knows what our lives can be and he knows how to make them that way. He's at work, the Bible says. He wants to work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. But how many times, honestly, how many times do we make decisions on what we think is good? Or what we think is, is pleasant? Or desirable. And, and that's exactly what Eve did. And we're going to end up in the same predicament where sin's going to be starting to fill our lives unless we allow the pruning. God to be able to put his finger on something and say, you know what? You've always had that relationship, but that relationship isn't of me. Because it's, it's dividing you.
It's pulling you away from me. Just an example. Is there anything wrong with having a boat? Last time I heard, I didn't hear, thou shalt not boat. So a boat isn't bad. But the challenge is when the boat begins to be more important to us than God and we want to spend more time on the boat or in the mountain cabin or whatever it is and we start dividing our allegiance, our attention, our affection, our resources, our time. And what does the Bible say about a kingdom divided? It won't stand. Or a city divided? It won't stand. Or a house divided? What does it say? It won't stand. But, the, you know, that's as far as it goes, right? How about a life divided? And I'm telling you, the enemy has been masterfully causing us to have so many great options, so many amazing choices. And unchecked, our lives can be drawn so far away in good things, in pleasant things, in desirable things, that the fruit of God in our lives begins to diminish and dwindle until it disappears, and we don't even know it. And I'm not saying you can't do anything fun. God wants you to have fun. He wants you to enjoy this life. But he does not want, not because he's an egomaniac, he does not want anything to be anywhere near in competition for you that there's nothing that comes close in your life to God being first in rank, in value, or in influence. Because when our lives are divided like that, they start falling apart. And we're seeing so many lives fall apart. And so God is pruning because there's a harvest coming. Jesus is coming back, but the Bible tells us before the, the return of Christ, there is an end-time harvest of souls. Souls are fruit. And for that to happen, the church has to be committed and connected to God and obedient and available to God. You know, right now, if God say, said to you, listen, I need you this week to... Uh, do this, this, and that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Many of us couldn't do that because we're so committed in so many other things. There should never be a time in our lives that we are not more committed to God than we are to anything else. And yes, I understand we have to work. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. But our lives shouldn't be so packed full of so many other things that we don't have wiggle room, that we can make adjustments and adjust our schedules, that we can make time for what God says is important. Because if we don't, then Jesus isn't Lord. He's an add-on, like we talked about last week. John 12, 24, and I'll end with this scripture. Jesus is talking, he says, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Jesus never lies. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains all by itself. But if it dies, it will produce lots of fruit. Now, Jesus right there was, was directly talking about him being crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. But he's also talking about you and me, talking about our lives. Unless we're willing to give up our life to God, we're not going to see what God intended our lives to produce. Unless we die to ourself, deny ourself, not do what we think is good or pleasant or desirable because those aren't a lock on what God wants. They could be, but they most likely could draw us away. So that's where, unless we're, the Bible says that if you delight yourself in the Lord, that means 
God is your delight, your everything. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. He's not necessarily going to give you what you want. He's going to put in your heart what he wants. Because what he wants in your heart is the best. And today, to the best of my ability, I've tried to share what God has for us, and it's uncomfortable. There's pruning going on here. Pruning is uncomfortable, but it's beneficial and it's necessary. If we never have pruning in our lives, we'll never become fully what God has. We'll never have the impact and be able to impart what God has for us in this life. And this life is very short compared to eternity. And God has for us to continue to grow and develop, to become more concentratedly focused on Him. Not to the exclusion of life. We're not asking you to, you know, start a monastery. But live in this world insulated from the world and focus so completely and dependently and trustingly on God that you walk in this world not only as his child, but his ambassador, his representative like Jesus did. And you bear witness to who he is and they see Christ in you and me and are drawn to him. But that takes us letting go of some of the things that need to be gone from our lives. And I don't know what they are. And you probably don't know all of what they are. But God does. And he'll deal with it on a time frame and in a way that you don't get overwhelmed because he's there to help you. But this is the process. If we're going to go to more fruit, then there's pruning in our lives, and it's good. It's the best. Amen? Like every head bowed, every eye closed. You know, this word is, is not a jump up and get excited initially because it reveals to us that there's change that's necessary. And for most of us, change is not what we're looking for. We like to know what's going on. We like familiarity, but God wants you to change. He wants to bring amazing, abundant life change to you. And that means that when pruning happens, there's, there's a cutting off, not to remove just to remove, but to make room for the best. That what may have been good and what may have been uh, pleasant and what may have been desirable is hindering God's best. And God wants the best in your life, but you have to and I have to partner with him and allow him to point things out and us to be obedient to say, all right, Lord, I, I, I really like that. I really want that, but I want you more than I want that. And prove that our lordship of Jesus is not just words, but it's our life being submitted and surrendered to Christ. If you're here and you've never turned to Christ or you're online and you've never turned to Christ and, and repented of your sin and recognized that Jesus died for your sin and you receive him as Lord, then today I, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And I'm not going to just ask you to pray alone. It's not like you're going to stick out. We're all going to pray this prayer together. But if you've never received Christ as your Lord, then I invite you to pray this prayer with us. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who came into this world, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead and paid the price for my sin. Today, Lord Jesus, I confess that I have sinned. I come to you and ask you to come into my life. I receive the forgiveness of my sin from you and cleansing from all my unrighteousness. Today, Lord, I thank you for saving me. From this day forward, I am yours. You are mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer today here, let somebody know before you leave. And you may say that's a little weird, but uh, it's not. It's just new and different to you. But we all celebrate 
the, the benefits and blessings that God brings into our life, and this is one of the greatest ones you'll ever know. If you're online and you prayed, please let us know. Go to our website, reslifeny.org. Go down to where the prayer requests are. Let us know that you prayed so we can be praying for you. If you want us to pray for you by name, let us know your name. And if you want us to contact you, give us some contact information. Would you all stand? A couple of things before we go. Uh, remember, uh, corporate prayer, praise and prayer is tomorrow night. Uh, it's a, an amazing blessing. And you may say, well, I, I'm a little shy. I don't want to pray in front of anybody else. You don't have to. Nobody makes you pray. We don't call you out. But you can be there to add your agreement to what's being prayed. And, uh, you know, maybe one day you will get the boldness to pray. Happened to me. Uh, also, if you have not been water baptized and since you've believed, put faith in Christ and want to be, sign up and be prepared to be at the, uh, the baptism class after the second service. Uh, and lastly, if you would be praying. You know, we, we don't always know what's going on with everybody. We pray for everybody. We pray for the people that are members. We pray that, God, the people that are attending, please continue to reveal yourself to them and, and guide them along your path. Uh, but we, we sometimes find out people go through difficult things, and we want to pray as a body. So um, last week, Linda Virgiline fell and broke her hip. And so uh, she's gone through surgery, and she's in the rehab stage. But uh, we need to be praying for her and Bob and for their family because it's a challenging thing to go through. But we're believing that God, Jehovah Rapha, her healer, is going to heal her completely, is going to restore her to better than she was before, and uh, work this all for good because that's what God says, and we need to believe His Word. Amen? But just be praying uh, the truth of God's Word and uh, health and healing and wholeness and God to provide for every need. Amen? Well, before you go, I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for every one of your children here. For those that, that connected online, we just thank you, Father, for your presence with us. We leave here today, and we leave knowing that we don't leave you. You go with us. Everywhere we go, you're there with us. You are for us. And Father, help us to recognize there's nothing better there's nothing more beneficial. There's nothing more valuable. And there is nothing that should be more influential than you. Because, God, you're the best. And you always give the best. And so, Father, help us. Help us to be on guard for the enemy in any disguise he wants to use. Trying to deceive us into thinking there's something better than you because there's nothing, 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 nothing better than you. And so as we go through this week, we thank you that we can, we can connect with you, we can commune with you, communicate with you, we can receive guidance from you and grace from you, that, Father, our lives would be overflowing with life, with peace, with joy, with hope, with health and strength and vitality. And that, Father, other people, we could impart your love and your goodness. We thank you for the good work that you've begun in us, that you are faithful to complete, because you are at work in us as we work with you, partner with you, to will and to do your good pleasure. We thank you for a great week. We bless you and praise you, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Have a great week.